0: Hey everyone, it's Adam. Uh, Just a quick note before you get to this amazing interview with Jessica Abel where she talks about everything from how you develop a great creative process to the tools she employs in storytelling um, to her own journey, like interesting things about how she went to Mexico City in the 90s to be creative. But I'm telling you because this Thursday, April 2nd at 5 p.m., we are hosting a free online class. Joshua and I will be there. There'll be movement, and we'll write, and it'll be a place to be supported in your creative work right now. We know that um, given the context of where things are, a lot of people can feel isolated, and there's a lot of anxiety, and they need community, and we are here, and it is free. Uh, It'll be a 90-minute class. It'll be on Zoom. The link is in the show notes. You may need to copy it over um, into your web browser. But we'd love to see all of you. We love... Um, we just really love our listeners, and um, we're so, so excited to have everyone there. Enjoy the this amazing interview. Now arriving downtown
1: Santa Monica Station.
2: Hey, Adam. It's time for Notes on Your Notes. I'm Adam Lesser. And I'm Joshua Townsend Zellner.
0: Welcome to Notes on Your Notes, a podcast about the creative process and storytelling. We are here in sunny Los Angeles. And uh, a special guest who, uh, across the country, um, someone whose work I've admired for a long time, uh, Jessica Abel joins us from Philadelphia.
1: Jessica, welcome. Welcome, welcome, Jessica, welcome. Thanks, guys. It is not sunny here.
0: (laughs) Rainy Philadelphia. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, rainy today. So I have, we could in this uh, podcast, not talk at all about the thing that everyone's talking about. So that is an option. We should do that. Yeah, That is a definitely an option for us. So, <laughs> Adam,
2: I love, I love how you started off. Let's, I want to have a conversation about what you know, not have a conversation about what everyone's talking about. That's a fantastic. I course. just
0: want to put that out there for the people who are a
1: little <laughs> bit tired. Right. For All right, let's, let's talk about something else first anyway.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to give you all permission who are listening to this podcast to imagine you're in a world, let's just imagine it's like 12 months from now and you're back to doing all your creative work in a really focused way. You're not dealing with homeschooling children or um, uh, taking clonopin for your excessive anxiety um, or whatever it is you're doing to in the moment. And you're just thinking about how can I be um, more engaged in my creativity and my work? So let's do that. Joshua, are you okay with okay, that? Yes.
2: yes, we're in a world, in a world, yes.
0: Um, I'm going to start by something we talked about in Lena, which is that when I think about your work, Jessica, I think about you as a cartoonist, author, educator, graphic novelist. You've done a lot of things all very well, which is hard, but I, at this, you know, where you are in your career, I'm just curious, like, what do you think of, how do you think about that thing now about how to identify as what you do?
1: Well, it's really, I mean, it's a really tough question because I'm still all of those things. Um, and you know, not actively working on any new comics right now. So the graphic novelist cartoonist piece is, uh, I'm not like drawing anything right now, but that doesn't mean I'm not a cartoonist. Like I deal with my comics all the time. Um, definitely an author, definitely an educator doing that constantly. Like I just was on calls with my advisees at, my, at the college that I teach at. I'm the head of the illustration department at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. And of course, I teach the creative focus workshop, so I'm dealing with adults who are trying to, you know, adults meaning not undergraduates um, who are trying to, um, you know, put their creative work at the center of their lives and focus on it, and especially in times like these. Um, and so, I'm teaching them every day, you know, working with them in one way or another every day, as coach or whatever. So, all of those identities um, intersect for me. And we were just saying before we got started, like. I have a really hard time introducing myself because it feels like no matter what I tell somebody when I walk in the room, yeah, what do you do? I'm bearing the lead. Like if I tell them, "Well, I'm you know I'm a cartoonist. I did all these books." Well, that's amazing. That's so great. Oh, and I'm the head of this department of <laughs> illustration. They're like, you could have said that up front, you know? Or like, I run an you know online you know coaching program and you know course, and they're like, really? That's so fascinating. And I did graphic novels. It just it's like I can't win. I you know people always feel like I'm screwing with them basically.
0: Yeah, I think this is a bigger problem in this day and age where everyone has like four things. I see this on Instagram, too, where like people are like, I'm a record producer and I'm a songwriter and I like a yoga teacher
1: and, and an accountant.
0: Yes. <laughs> right. I'm always like digging through that. It's like, how do you actually make money? <laughs> like right, exactly. <laughs> like, so I
2: I have a I have a very specific point of view on this because I've I've been doing hyphen it my whole life. In fact, I've never had like a job job, like a nine to five thing. And the perspective I have is is that is that as soon as I evo- invoke the I am state, you you present something in a very specific way without without necessarily having to merge. So I can say I am a writer it doesn't mean that I'm actually writing, kinda of like what you were talking about earlier. It's like just because you know, you're a cartoonist. Yes, you are. You know, you do that. You do that in the world, but just because you're not doing something right now doesn't make you not that. And then I'm going to bring it to a whole nother realm, which I think is really interesting because I visit, I used to visit Hawaii twice a year and in Hawaii people do like anywhere from like eight to 12 jobs just to keep, as they say, body and soul together. But because we have no attachment to being a waiter or Uh, uh, a tour guide or someone who does all these things that they would do in a in a travel economy in Hawaii like they don't care but because we work in a world where in a world we work in a world where there's like some energy on it in terms of like oh the entertainment industry oh the art industry you know then then people have a different consideration so it's I feel like all of that is up when we talk about what we're talking about
1: Right. I mean, there's, uh, I mean, I'm not at a point in my life right now where I'm working as a waiter or as a bartender, but I've done it in my life and I wouldn't introduce, introduce myself as that then. It's more about identity. Like, how do you identify? I am. But even then I'm confused. Like, I don't, I'm all those things, you know, I still, like, I'm all those things that say, and to me it's integrated, right? Inter- inside me it's integrated. And once I get to have a, a conversation with somebody, I think most people can see how all these things fit together. But it's just really hard to sort of get over that initial hump of like, how does one thing feed another? Because they all do. They all feed into each other and they all become an organic whole. I couldn't be doing the kind of coaching I'm doing yeah. without having yeah. 30 years under my belt as a creative professional. Right. I think it's
2: a cultural thing is what I'm sharing, is that I feel like as, as our culture opens up to this more and more as a possibility of what could be, then that communication will be mm, more readily available. Yeah, that'd be good. We, because we'll have a language for it. And, and it will also be real for us. Like, it, like it's real for me, like your reality is real for me. But if you talk to someone else who doesn't share my reality, it may not be real for them,
0: if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think there's also a question of like value and that I think that, and, and wanting how someone feels comfortable representing themselves, what they want other people to think of them. I think that's a big factor. Don't mm-hmm. always think it's healthy, but I think that like, Someone may be like, Well, I only want people to think of me as a musician. I don't want them to know that I'm a bartender, right? You know, because I want to be taken seriously. And I think that is where the cultural judgment sometimes shifts and, in. And I think I've been guilty of that too. You know? and,
2: that's, and that's what I'm talking about when it comes to Hawaii. I'm just using Hawaii as an example. But because culturally speaking, everyone has to do so much, they don't have that attachment. They don't have the I am. I'm, oh, I do Airbnb and I do yeah. deliveries. And, you know, it's like, you do whatever you do,
0: yeah.
2: But we in LA or other places have attachment to,
0: you know, the money component and the income and the definition. Yeah. Um, I. It's not always that we have someone on the show who made something creative that I really, really love, and have. And you are one of those people. Um, so I, I don't know if this is annoying because I know this book came out what four or five, four years ago. I don't know exactly but out on the wire is one of my favorite books as is the podcast um i'm gonna butcher it but anyways for those who don't know uh, jessica made this amazing book called out on the wire, wire um, illustrated it and it's all about narrative storytelling told through the world of documentary radio and um the podcast is also really wonderfully done as well it's a nine-part series really talks about goes through how your story and so I just wanted to start there because I, our listeners care a lot about storytelling and how you, there are a lot of writers and artists that listen to the show. Um, how did that project come about? Because at that point you'd already had like a successful career as a graphic novelist and a, you know, a writer, like how did that, you become interested in doing that?
1: Well, it actually has a super long history. Um, the uh, And I don't mind at all talking about it. I love talking about this book and I love talking about storytelling. So that's, let's talk about it, you know? <laughs> um, but so Out on the Wire is actually, the roots of it are in the late 90s um, when I um, was contacted by Ira Glass to do a, you know, short comic book, a floppy comic book about how they made their show as a pledge drive premium. Um, and so I did a book called Radio and Illustrated Guide with Ira, came out in
0: 1999. I bought that. i it just... Totally embarrassed to say that I bought that mail order. I remember I was living in Hoboken in an apartment. I don't know why I'm embarrassed. I'm just like old Why
1: are you embarrassed by that?
0: (laughs) I was like, I I totally, I still have it in storage somewhere.
1: That's awesome. I mean, there's nothing embarrassing about that. That is like, you know, you buying that is part of uh, what made Out on the Wire happen. Because um, basically, Radio and Illustrated Guide was then... Um, and for many years, pretty much the only document out there of any kind, it's a comic book, but like, you know, that really walks through the steps of how This American Life was put together. Like, literally, here's what a pitch looks like. There's a pitch letter printed in it. There's, you know, here's how you go and um, do research. Here's how you write a script. Here are the things you want to look for in a script. Here's how you record. And, you know, all of the steps of putting the show together, yeah. which technology aside, are exactly the same today. It's the exact same process. Um, and This American Life was not the only, well, Ira was not the only radio journalist working this way. He learned it from other people, but it was very rare to work this way. And his show, I don't know if you guys remember what this was like in the you know, mid-90s when it started appearing. It was like nothing sounded like that. You know, it was this new way of sounding. And it was a huge hit very early um, in the world of public radio, which is tiny, not anymore, but then, you know, it was like not a huge thing, but, you know, very, very popular. I was in Chicago, I was listening to it that, you know, before it even went national. Um, And so I was incredibly excited to work with Ira. Uh, And in fact, the story is really funny. Um, I moved in 1998 to Mexico city. um, And (laughs) in my like whatever, thinking like I'm trying to work as an illustrator. I'm going to move to Mexico City. Nobody's going to be able to find me because there's no such thing as people like looking you up online. There's no Google. Um, yeah. I did start my my first website then. Um, and I was like, I don't, you know, how is this going to happen? I don't know how this is going to work. People just call me on the telephone. Like that's how this works, right? So I have business cards and like postcards and things. I send them out. People call me on the telephone. That's how you get work. So I put this message on my phone that would go, would sit for six, six months, like not voicemail, but like a forwarding message, like, Hey, we're not here anymore. Call me at this new number in Mexico city. And, um, nobody ever called me at this number, <laughs> except Ira Glass, no. the only person who ever did. Oh um, so it was worth it. 100% worth it. So basically, um, what happened is in 1995, I had, well, in the mid nineties, I was working, you know, on a, like a, somewhat regular basis at this tabloid free paper called the new city in chicago and they would send me out to do journalistic journalistic comics so i would do like man on the street report you know reporting and do comics strips for the paper and over the course of a few years i did like i don't know six or seven features or something for them and one was about the fireside bowl which is a bowling alley that had punk shows in it and so i did that and apparently ira clipped and saved it and had it in his drawer and three years later he's at like a meeting going like what are we going to do for our pledge drive i know let's do a comic book i've got an idea and he looks it up in his drawer looks me up in the white pages finds my listing in chicago whoa calls me gets the forwarding message and calls me in mexico city meanwhile in mexico city my husband and i um not then husband then boyfriend uh would use real audio to stream This American Life. It was one of the very few shows you could actually stream at that time. So we listened to it, even though we were next and we were totally familiar with it and you know, loved it and whatever. So I knew, is Ira Glass on the phone before he said his name? And it was, it was I was just like. <laughs> that is such a trip, wow. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. I've read that about
0: him, that he keeps like files of clips of all the, like of all the things he wants to go back to. I
1: mean, I don't, I. I didn't even know that about him, but clearly he did. And, yeah. um, yeah. And also just being a really good reporter, he's like, sure. I'll call her in Mexico city. Everybody else was like, what time zone are you in? It was like this thing, like nobody did what they do now of like take their laptop and work abroad and Oh, it's fine. I'm in Argentina. Yeah, yeah. No, that was not a thing. You know, like I, it was really, um, it was unusual and it was hard for people to get their brains around, you know, it's fine for IRS. So anyway, I did that. Um, and so, uh, that was, uh, a really cool experience but then basically in the subsequent years this remained the only document of like how do you make this kind of narrative audio um and uh it essentially was never available in stores you basically could just get it from the this american life website and it wasn't even on the front page it was like buried it was like this thing you had to find nonetheless it continued to sell for however long it's still for sale you can still get it if you want um and i would make royalties on this book which I mean, as an author, I know royalties just they don't ever happen, like royalties just like they 're a dream, so it was a sign right that that people were actually reading this thing, and not only that, I would every once in a while, I would run into somebody um. Like I remember running into a, a cartoonist friend of mine at a, or an, somebody I knew of, you know, we had common friends at a comics convention and we got introduced and he's like, Oh my God, Jessica Abel, you're amazing. You did radio and illustrated guide. I have bought it 20 times and given it to all my friends, right? Like that kind of thing. Or somebody else who I met in Finland, I believe who told me that his brother had become a radio producer because of my book. Wow. Like it had these kind of ripple effects that were really startling. So around, you know, I thought for several years, like, I should do something else with this. I should do, you know, there's something, there's more there. This was before the big podcast boom, but more radio stuff was happening, Um, you know, more different shows and things like that. So I went back to Ira and I want to say, I think it was 2011 or something and said, Hey, I've got this idea. We should just take this book and expand it and make it bigger and do like a full, like, you know. Um, book with a spine. It's not a graphic novel because it's nonfiction, but like graphic documentary. I don't know. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, and I I presented this to to Ira, and he basically said, Yeah, no, we're not going to do that because like the first time we did this was a, a lot of work, and I'm a busy man. We're making cereal now, you know. It was like, yeah. um, that hadn't happened yet, but like I, there was a lot of stuff going on with the their whole you know business, and he just wasn't going to get involved. But he was like, I think what really needs the story that needs telling is the other other shows that are happening now like all the other things that are happening different ways of using um long-form audio storytelling and so you know and I was like that sounds like a great idea so he um his people helped me get in touch with a bunch of other shows and so I ended up working with um Snap Judgment and Planet Money and um Radiolab and um the Moth and Radio Diaries, and like basically a bunch of other shows, and investigating how they made stories. And then, so, Radio and Illustrated Guide was very tactical. It's very like step by step by step. How do you actually put this together te- technically? Right. But Out on the Wire is about what are the elements of story? What makes story really work? Like, what makes it sticky in this context? You know, it's, but I think a lot of it is transferable across you know, I I basically with the podcast then wanted to extend it very consciously to many different media, not just audio, but like comics and fiction writing and nonfiction writing and screenwriting and like all the different things. Mm -hmm. And so very consciously was trying to spread, like help people understand how to translate back and forth from this audio, the audio medium that I was talking about in the book to everything else. And the Radio Illustrated Guide, the part of it that is the most tactical is actually the preface to Out on the Wire. It's in the book.
0: Got it. One of the one of the things that resonated with me when I read Out on the Wire the first time was you talk about the complications in long-form projects and that sense of like you get to the point where um, I want to make sure I get to know. I think you talk about being in the, the dark forest and you don't know how to get <laughs> out and sort of like working, finding the story from within that And I'm curious what, you know, I know you work with people and I know you address it in the book, like moving from short form projects to long form projects, I think is very different. And when people are in that area of like trying to figure out how do they get to them, what is the advice you give them? And what have you noticed among people who who are able to get through and finish long form projects? Well,
1: you know, I actually don't think it's necessarily only long form projects. It's just that the forest is a little smaller and a little less dark when you have less of it to get through. But anything can put you in the dark forest if it's like, challenging enough. This, the metaphor comes from Jad Abumrad of Radiolab and he was calling it the German forest actually because uh, he was working on a story about Wagner but that becomes very obscure so I just call it the dark forest which kind of resonates with everybody. Yeah. Um, but basically I've worked with this whole concept a lot since the book because I work with creative people trying to make big projects and whatever and just keep thinking about and talking about the dark forest and what I've figured out about it is that there are a lot of parallels in every kind of creative process to what Jad talked about in the book. Um, And that the dark forest essentially is a really good sign, um, even though it's really painful, because what it means is that you are trying to, you're pushing yourself and you're trying to do something truly new, challenging, you know, that's going to change you and change the work that you do. You know, Um, if it's easy, you're not, really stretching. If you get to the center of something, and basically the dark forest is the part of the project. It's not at the beginning where you're like, you know, um, starting to see how things are complicated. It's when you have like piles and piles and piles of stuff, like you've created tons of stuff. You've, you know, made outlines and you've made notes and you've, you know, had conversations and you're all this stuff and you just can't quite make it gel. And it's that moment when you're like, I, I'm not good enough. I can't, Do this, I'm not capable of this, and it's a horrible feeling. But that moment is when you have to understand oh, this is because I'm struggling to like make all of these elements gel together in a way that I've never had to do before. Like, my brain has not had to do this. I have to learn things and I have to grow and I have to get bigger and more capable because I'm asking something new of myself. And once you recognize that and you give it a name, it really takes a ton of the pressure off, and you realize like this is like what other people go through. This is a natural part of the process. This is something saying that I am doing the right things rather than the wrong things. It doesn't mean you're going to get through it because you don't always, you know, like there's there, that's the moment also when you can crash and burn and just decide to like, I'm out, I can't do this, you know, I don't want to. But if you are able to stick with it, knowing that this is an essential part of the process, you know, bit by bit, little bits start to stick together, and you start to understand things, you start to make connections between things, and you can get through it, you can get to the other side of this. Yeah. Some of the,
2: some yeah. of the, times, some of the times when I'm working on a project in that, in that phase, I, I, circle, I constantly circle back to some of the underlying themes I'm working on or, or very specific points, and I really want to ask myself, is that true? Is that, is that still true today? Is that a, a, a clear articulation? Do I need to
1: shape that in a slightly different way? Do you find that to be an effective tool? I think, I mean, questioning your assumptions certainly is something you do at that point. It can actually be undermining in some ways where you're like, do I know anything? You know what I mean? Like if you're sort of at that point trying to knock out the, the supports underneath you, it can go well or it can go badly. I mean, my my number one piece of advice for people who are in that state is, Um, something that's also drawn from in a sort of roundabout way from working on Out on the Wire, which is what I call a focus session, where basically you sit down with somebody, like you guys would sit down with each other because you know each other and you know each other's work well and have a relationship and trust each other. Like you can't just sit down with like a random stranger. It has to be somebody who you trust their voice to a certain extent. Um, But then you just literally talk your way through what you're stuck on. Like verbalize what you're stuck on. And record it while you're talking about it. Mm-hmm. And what I find is, and you may, you're not going to get through all the way through, but you may get through some little piece and make some connection. And then that gives you a little traction to get through the next little piece. So you just talk about the thing, you know, 45 minutes, whatever. Let me just talk through this. And a lot of times you're not really looking, most of the time, you're not really looking for advice from the other person. You don't want them to fix it. You want them to listen in an intelligent way, ask questions, ask questions, Sometimes they'll have some kind of an idea, but if they're trying to fix it, they're probably going to fix it wrong because they don't actually understand what's inside it as well as you do. Right. So some people are like, they need to fix things and you need to explain to them, like, I don't need you to fix this. I just need you to listen and like listen for internal contradictions in what I'm saying or whatever's interesting and highlight that for me or whatever it is. Um, and you record it because often you say the thing out loud that is this, the fix. But you if you don't, Get it in that moment, you can lose it. And so often I'll listen back to these recordings of myself and think more thoughts and get more sort of insight out of that conversation than from the original time through. The important thing for the other person is to know that there's a limit to this, that you're not asking them for like a bottomless well of, you know, giving. And just you say to them, like, you know, I need you for an hour. You know, I will buy you a coffee. I need you to sit down. I need you like fully focus on this for an hour. And then you will be like saving my life. So thank you. <laughs> yeah.
0: You've absolved all sins. Yeah, yeah. yeah the time limit. Um, yeah, I mean, when you guys are both talking, when I think about these issues or I've experienced them as a writer or with other people, it's, it's always, an, there, there is limited perspective, I think when you are in that dark forest and you know, by design and the analogy. And like, I often think it's just actually when I'm looking for people who ask a high quality of question, rather than like no one knows the solution outside of you and you may know not know it at that moment but people who are really good at giving you know what would be sort of giving notes in terms of at least the screenwriting world or the tv writing world it's like they have they can follow you on that path to ask the right questions until you figure out what the character should do in that situation Until you figure out who who has a relationship with you in that situation and um i think You know, Josh and I talk about all the time. It's just like when people come in with really results, prescriptive notes, it's not always helpful because they're trying to fix your project rather than trying to elicit from you what the ultimate vision is and how do you sort of, how do you put those things together? And then people give really good notes. Then also maybe give you suggestions for processes and activities that will actually get you closer. Like, hey, like it seems like this character and this relationship to this place in your life is really important. Why don't you go spend a day there? you know, in whatever this coffee shop where yeah. this character is having this fight with their boyfriend, you know, in this story. And so, but I think that that, in my experience, the amount of people who can give that kind of support is pretty small. Most people, we don't teach people how to give notes. We really don't. And for obvious reasons, it's such a weird niche thing, you know, how but to I don't think
1: I don't think people have to be that good at it to be useful at it. You know, like they don't. Yes, I think that you're right, that if you're in the screenwriting world, you have, you're lucky to have access to a bunch of people who've practiced this. It's a thing that you do in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of other people don't have that. And even well, in like, writing think, groups...
0: Sorry, just, I'm just making a small point. I actually think a lot of the people I know, even our high-level professional screenwriters, don't know how to do this because they work in environments where they're under pressure to provide the solution and the fix. Mm. <laughs> they're in a writer's room to like, figure, fix the scene and give me the joke Rather than And when you're at the stage you're talking about where you're trying to create something original and you're in it, it's like a weird thing. I, Anyways, I don't want to interrupt, but that's. I actually think you're right 100%. It's just about do you have someone there to play that role for you? I
1: just don't want to raise the bar that high because I really think that there's a lot that people can give who are just good at listening to stories and hearing what you're saying. And it's not so much – again, like the job is your job. It's your job to fix it. If they can just listen and kind of like even like express – Reactions with their face or they're bored at some point or whatever like you can feel that from them And it's immensely helpful even if they can't really give you awesome notes even just you talking having anybody talk at Helps
0: yeah Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because like the world of TV and screenwriting that's more part of like the process the practice because you're expected to go talk to someone about your story and then they tell you what you think but in other things it's sort of like novel writing is a little different. Essay writing, journalism—it doesn't work like that as much. You'd expect mm-hmm. to hand something in, and then someone gives you written notes. But I do th- agree. There's such a value in being able to talk about an idea and see just how it's landing on other people. You know, like where are they interested? Where are they not interested? You know, where they—and
1: I think a lot of people, a lot of people feel like if they can't—and even this can even be true with painting or something. It doesn't even have to be about a story. You know, it's like what's not working here? Like, talk it through. Um, but basically people feel like if they can't do it on their own, that there's something wrong with them and they're broken, you know, that there's something like messed up about their relationship with the story because they can't just like pull it, you know, fully formed out of their head by themselves. But I just think that's, you know, crap. It's just not true. It's an unrealistic
2: expectation and it doesn't, it doesn't help. It for sure. doesn't help. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I was thinking about just the other day, Jessica, which I think is really fun is this thing of, um, Uh, tools that we all employ uh, for uh, better storytelling, you know, like put a clock on it, you know, that kind of thing. And um, what tools do you see that you employ for your storytelling that you've either constructed or deconstructed in your life?
1: Well, I mean, um, again, stemming out of the work from Out on the Wire and then work I've done since then, one of the biggest things that I – have implemented in the last few years is using formulas, story formulas. Oh, so there's um, the, the easiest one to get into is one called XY story formula that comes from um, Alex Bloomberg, who is the founder of Gimlet and he was at planet money when I was there. He was one of the founders of planet money and it's, and he made it up when he was at um, this American life and it's super, super simple, but like deceptively useful. So it's, um, this I'm I'm making a story about X, and uh-huh. what's interesting about it is Y. That's the formula, and um, it is. <laughs> I find it like it's the formula that never stops giving. Like every, it works for <laughs> everything. Like for everything, and um, the the thing about a, it's a framework, right? It's not a formula. It's a framework, and the thing about frameworks is that they. Um, evoke questions so like you know what is this part like what's missing here why isn't this functioning you know and um they're they're endlessly flexible they're not um like a formula is a rule book and so i shouldn't have used that word it's a framework which is just like you know a structure in which to put things and test things out so you can kind of test your story against these these ideas and so like for example one of the things that um One of the most common problems I see when people are using the XY story formula is that they think they know what X is. They assume they know what X is, which is the topic of the story. But frequently, once they figure out what Y is, they go back and they're like, oh, wrong X. And they have to come up with something different. You can almost come up with like sort of a table of possible X's and possible Y's and kind of match them together and figure out what it is. And if you're doing nonfiction, you're dealing with a pile of research within which you have to find a story you know, you have all kinds of like possibilities for a story, Mm -hmm. especially applicable there, because then you're trying to pull out like, well, is this a story about his relationship with his mother or his relationship with his wife or his dog or, you know, like, you know, his space career, what, you know, like, what's the, what is this about? Like, what's the X here? And then like, the Y is what makes this interesting or different or surprising or, you know, pick your adjective here. Mm -hmm. Um, And the key to that piece is that, Uh, it puts the focus on the audience, the reader, the listener, whatever. Like it's Mm -hmm. not what's interesting to you. It's what's going to make it interesting to the person listening. What's going to make it gripping and compelling, moving, life-changing, you know, again, enter whatever adjective you want to hit there to the person who's on the receiving end of this story. And that is an, immensely difficult reframe for so many storytellers because we all come at stories generally speaking from like what's interesting to us what do I want to spend all my time on well if you can't convey the heart of that to somebody else you're not going to have an audience like you know and you're not going to like be able to tell a story in such a way that you're going to be able to involve other people in it.
2: It's, a, it's very interesting what you're sharing, it's, uh, and I, I agree a thousand percent. Um, we just did a show called The Hannah Chronicles, and this wonderful writer came in. She wrote a story, and we had a round of notes, and we did that for over four episodes, eight and a half, nine hours of conversation. Um, and it was, it was essentially, at least the first 50% was essentially what you just shared. Was you know We started off, or she started off thinking it was a story about herself and her, her husband, and it really was about herself and her mother. hmm and th- but through that process, the story became more engaging, which is what you're talking about, which is the why. So articulating really what the X is first, well, not you know, first, and then the Y starts to evolve as well, as does the X. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's, it's so powerful. And you do it over and over again. It's iterative. It's, it's a thing where you think you know what it is, and you keep working, and you're like, oh, it's not quite that, is it? It's this other thing. Or maybe it just completely changed directions there's a woman i work with a client i work with who's working on a book and uh she initially thought it was going to be a children's book about a dog um you know true story about a dog who lost his master um and then it turns out it's a it's actually a memoir about her and her grandmother and I the meaning love, of death and I life it's like that. this you know it's like oh my i yeah. so love that it was amazing, and it like yeah. the the day that when we talked about that, when I was like, "Is this about you?" And she's just like, "What?" You know, this kind of. <laughs> right and she's on. so on it now, and it's it's going to be so great. But it's just really like a, yeah, st- just striking how, you know, going through that framework helped me articulate this different. I was like, "This is not this is not the book you think this is." Right.
2: Right, what is this about? What is this really about, right? What is this about and what is it really about?
1: Yeah, I'm getting personal. Yeah, and that's the simplest of the frameworks that I've been using. So, Mm -hmm. um, and the nice thing about the XY Story formula is you can actually use it down to the most micro level. Like you can use it on, you know, an email. Like, how do I make sure the people reading this email get the message? Like, what am I trying to actually say here? What makes this interesting to them? What makes this important to them? Uh, you know, you can use it on a sentence. So, um, I'm, I'm going to use it when I go to the bank. Yeah. It really helps. I mean, it really helps the people around you, you know, it helps you build relationships with people around you. Cause you're like able to be clear about like, what are you talking about and why do they care? Mm-hmm. You know, like,
0: yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about process and structure in people's lives. Cause I know it's something you, you've tried to work You work with a lot of artists on and writers. Um, Do you have an approach to helping people figure out their creative process? Because this bleeds into a conversation about discipline. And I feel like um, I know I deal with it in the people I work with, there's a lot of people coming in and having lots of projects and not being able to find the focus or a consistent process that they can go back to over time. Um, And I know this is a huge topic. It's something Josh and I spent a lot of our time working on, but I'm just curious how you approach like trying to, help people find a per- process that's reliable for them.
1: Well, um, I have a, a whole course about that called the creative focus workshop. Um, that's in like in a membership group called the autonomous creative collective um, that where people join for years and keep working on this process, this idea of like, how do you create something sustainable, resilient, productive, you know, joyful out of your creative life. So it's not a, it's not a simple question. Yeah. Um, but my basic approach. Uh, I actually have a, a um, like a video workshop I did on this recently, and I came up with this framework. Framework again, love frameworks, called the Creative Engine, where there's four stages for the Creative Engine. Um, and the first stage is what I call Collect, which is research and you know coming up with ideas and like just you know all that stuff, the sort of fun stuff of like making the big pile of stuff you're going to do stuff with. Yeah. So, there's collect and then there's decide, um, which is when you have to say, what out of this stuff am I going to use? Which of these projects am I going to do? You know, where am I going to put my attention? Got to say the decide phase gets skipped most of the time and is the source of like 50 to 80% of the problems. If you skip decide, the engine is going to break. And then you have act. So, after decide, after decide by the way, after decide, you have act (laughs) where you actually make the thing and act takes the longest, but it's not just you're sitting and act the entire time. You're going back to collect and decide over and over again. Right. So this, um, and then the final, the fourth stage is reflect. So that's when you look back on whatever you've done and you learn from it and you, uh, you incorporate and sort of lock in your learning by thinking about what went well, what didn't go well, what am I gonna do differently next time and whatever. And if this sounds like something that takes like, okay, so you're making, writing a screenplay, for example, and it takes you say 18 months or something to go through this entire cycle. Sure, but you're also going through through the cycle every day. You know, in the morning you collect, what are you gonna do today? And you decide out of those things, you know, what are the options? You decide what you're gonna do, you act, you do some stuff, you need to reflect at the end of the day and decide what you're gonna do tomorrow right? And so you're going through this creative engine cycle over and over again at a a micro level and at a macro level. And there are all kinds of very specific and predictable kinds of resistance that you hit at very specific and predictable places in this engine that slow everything down like you're in molasses. And it's not that you're not moving, but you're moving really slowly and it's really painful. Um, and then there are other parts where it's like, like skipping decide and skipping reflect, which is the other big thing people skipped, you know, they're like, go straight from collect to act. And then like, why didn't it work? And then they don't think about it and they go back to collect again. So, you know, there's all these things that happen in this, that can break the functioning of the creative engine. So one
2: of the things that, that, that you're stimulating here when you share that is, uh, which is a great articulation, is the reflect phase is also what I call integration. And um, the integration phase, again, I always think I always talk about the collective, but from, from a cultural point of view, we don't do that. There's hardly any reference point for us as a culture to actually reflect or, or integrate or take time to really feel that those strings coming together into a braid, you know? And so, you know, it's an uphill thing for the, for the artist. but I feel like we as humans need to start doing that more and more.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure it's just our culture. I don't know that it's a thing that, you know, it's, it's a much higher level function than most of the other parts of the engine, frankly. You know, it's where you get into your strategic brain and you think like, well, what makes the most sense for me going forward? It's not just, you know, yes, you also need to take a pause and you need to, you know, integrate this learning for yourself and give yourself time to, you know, really breathe it in and all that stuff. But you're also, you need to use your brain and think like... Okay, so that didn't work in this part. So how am I to not let that happen again? Or like, what, given that I finished this project and this, this is what I could do with it, what am I going to do next? Like, what is the next step for me? And that's really in that reflect phase. It's, it's, it's really taking things up a level out of the day-to-day. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in, in my program, I teach um, doing this definitely at a weekly, on a weekly basis with a weekly reflection you know, we, I send it out every Friday to everybody in the group, you know, every day's weekly reflection, they don't all do it. They're supposed to do it. <laughs> um, I suggest strongly oh that it's a good idea to do it uh-huh. um, and, you know, spend that time. And I just actually did a coaching call last week where um, one of my members was saying, just talk to me about weekly, just tell me about weekly reflection. Why, why am I doing this again? Like I do it, but it feels painful. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh my God, it is so awesome to do this. It's such, I love my weekly reflection. Like my weekly review is such a fun time for me because I get to look back at my week and like celebrate what I finished. And I get to get into that strategic brain and make big decisions about what I want to do in the future and think about the projects that I don't let myself think about all week because I'm too busy doing the thing, you know, and it's um, rewarding for me Uh to give myself the time to think in a larger global sense about what's going on in my life, you know, So um, once I said that, she was like, "Oh, okay, I get it." So we'll see what happens with her. But
2: yeah, this this decision, the step two, or you know, the second phase in this framework, the decision process—it's a very interesting one too. Because a lot of times we we think of decision as as like a linear process, as opposed to a decision could also be a a more intuitive process, you know, and it can be a self-selective process. It can be an anomaly process. So can you share a little more about about since that's the one that most people skip over so much. Um, like what? how many different ways can we approach that decision-making process or, or either I decided or it decides me, right? So that we can open up the framework on it, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that um, people come to decisions all kinds of ways, but I think the biggest um, hurdle with deciding is realizing you have a decision to make, like that you need to decide. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the most part, I think we don't um, – recognize how many decisions we need to make throughout the day. And we definitely do not recognize what that takes out of us. I mean, one of the biggest things that causes resistance in the creative process is decision fatigue. Like you've got to decide right now in front of you, like, are you going to, you know, get into this difficult project that, you know, you've been putting off for two weeks, or are you going to like hang out on Facebook for a while? Well, you know, what's going to actually happen because you're not looking at, you know, you have to, you're forcing yourself to decide in that moment. Now, if you've, taking your reflect phase the night before and decided what you're going to do already. And you are, your setup set up to do it. You're more likely to get into your creative work when you intend to, because you are not faced with decision fatigue. You know what you're doing, you know what it is already. Um, So, you know, that's at a a fairly straightforward level, but you know, when I talk about, one of the things I talk about a lot is the idea of one goal, one goal to rule them all, like have one thing you're working on and doesn't literally mean one thing. Certainly not forever, right? Like one thing at a time in terms of creative projects. But also like in a lot of our lives, we'll have like a project that has to do with, you know, personal life. So you're like trying to eat differently or something like that. And you'll have a project that has to do with your job and you'll have a project that has to do with, you know, that you're trying to create some original creative work or whatever. But if you're trying to juggle multiple like significant creative project at the same time, Mm -hmm. all of them will take just exponentially more time and be exponentially more difficult than if you just focus on one thing at a time. I know this from personal experience as the author of a book that took me 12 years to finish and is 200 pages long. I know this is true. I can speak from personal experience, from multiple personal experiences. So, you know, it's it's a really, really hard discipline, one goal is, but um, I have uh, embraced it fairly fully myself at this point, And it is Transformational in terms of how much stuff you can get done and how much clearer you can be, and how much less decision fatigue can be in your life all the time. Um, And the way that I teach that is through a process where you have like a series of, like, you actually make a list of all the things you want to do. Like, you make the list on paper, and then you have to go through a process of sorting that list and thinking about, like, what do you want to do? And there are all kinds of different criteria. I give a list of five criteria that are suggested. You know, these may be important to you things like, does it make you money? You know, or like, is this, does this have to do with the, you know, goal of your life, you know, is this a step on the path to that final thing that is essential? You will not get to that final thing without this thing. You know, is this something that's going to build relationships with colleagues and your audience? You know, is this something that's really, really important in terms of that? You know, all these different things are criteria that I've pulled out as like major criteria, but you may have personal criteria as well, like things that are very, very important to you, like um, political uh, impact. If you're really interested in politics, you know, or, you know, climate change or something like that, like this project is actually going to have an effect on people's understanding of what's going on in my change. you know, like that's going to be a criterion that's going to be very, very important to you. And it's going to have a very heavy weight in the way you think about this thing. But I look at it in a very, personally, I'm very unwoo. I'm very like, you know, like practical about all this stuff. It's like, you add up the numbers, something's going to rise to the top, you know, like, mm-hmm. so again, so you if you really did- think about what matters to you it's
2: really a decision. It's a, it's a, you know, I call them choice points, but it's a decision. Right. So, and so we're always faced with choice points, make a choice. And that's, and that's challenging for most people. Oh yeah.
0: I think there's also something culturally at play in like the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years where there's so many things we want to be doing now. And we feel like we have so many choices and we can, you know, it goes back to identity and we talked about the beginning that some people don't, they want to be doing five things at the same time. And they don't want to acknowledge that they can really probably only do one or two really well, you know, in addition to really one really well if they're working a job. So I think there's like almost, I mean, I remember as the first episode of our show we ever did was called opening doors, closing doors, Mm. which was all about this question of like having to come, you know, close a door and to open another one, which is, and you open that door through commitment to that project. Um, and then being willing to hang out in that project through it, get support. Uh, and I think, I do think it is hard now. Um, I don't think it's insurmountable. I think there's a need for support and focus. And I'm, you know, I always think about people like Stephen King, who I guess writes every day of the year, even on Christmas. And like, um, this, we did actually a couple episodes on Discipline, which people loved, which is like our, some of our most highest rated episodes. Cause I think people, really want this answer about how they can be more disciplined and I'm curious what you notice among the people you work with who finally make that turn and actually get into a a rhythm and a commitment and work consistently over long periods of time and I'm curious what you noticed in them and then also in yourself during the periods where you've been able to do that.
1: Um, I think the main thing I would want to say about that is that the desire to be more disciplined is like Con- it contains its own like seeds of destruction <laughs> because discipline is a problem. Like we should not be disciplining ourselves. I have a, yeah, I a, a blog And I actually wanted to say blog quickly,
0: post. sorry, just yeah. One quickly, I want to say when I hear stories about people like Stephen King and I have other friends who are artists who are like that, um, I actually don't think it's discipline at all. I, I think discipline as a concept doesn't exist in them. It's a completely different way that orientation that they see the world through. Um, and it's not, they're not, harassing
1: themselves yeah yeah it's a very intuitive
0: thing for them
1: well i think it's but it's a creative habit that they have built and i'm sure he did not always sit down and write every day um that he had to build that as a habit and maybe built it very very early and it you know but it's rewarding in its own way um and so he's stuck with it and um i think that the the answer to you know getting your work done is first of all, ease up on yourself, be kind to yourself. Um, And, and you know, I talk about this idea of like um, self-compassion being a productivity tool because um, when you, beat yourself up because you miss some kind of self-imposed deadline or even an externally de- imposed deadline or, you know, any kind of bar that you've set for yourself, you miss the bar and then you sit around beating up on yourself around, about it. What's going to happen is that you have, you feel shame about missing that bar, missing that point. And when you feel shame, um, nobody walks into shame. Nobody walks towards shame, period. <laughs> so... You, are going to avoid that thing even more because you feel horrible about it so the only answer is to be kind to yourself and say like well that happened water water under the bridge let's keep moving all right so i'm just going to do some stuff today um and is it is the only way to build a sustainable and resilient creative practice is to forgive yourself and to not beat yourself up over stuff like that um because otherwise you're constantly fighting yourself you're constantly fighting against fear of shame, um, whenever you are in the zone of your creative stuff, right? So my, um, teaching in this is to set the bar ultra low, so low you could like, you know, belly crawl over it, like on the ground. (laughs) If you are having trouble getting stuff done, two minutes is all you're allowed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, you have to say, I have to stop after two minutes. I have to do two minutes and then I have to stop after two minutes and do that for a few days. Then maybe you can let yourself go for five or 10, you know, you're going to want to do it, right? Like you have to get into the habit of doing it and the habit has to be so easy and so uh, ideally it's so attractive. Like I have to do this for two minutes and then I can have like a peanut butter cup. Like I don't care what your reward system is, like associate it with fun stuff. Like I can, once I do this. Two minutes, or while I do this two minutes, I get to listen to, you know, a podcast I love, or you know, some music I love, like associate it with something good, and just keep faith faith with yourself for a while, and build on that. You can't build on a habit unless you have a habit to build on. Like you can't make it better until it exists. So the that is how you know one becomes quote unquote disciplined is by. Um, building on our natural consistency. Like we all have habits. We do every single day, every single, I don't care how inconsistent your listeners are sitting there going like, oh, not me. It's like, do you brush your teeth? You know, do you actually wake up? Like, do you go to the bathroom? Like there are things we do every day, right? Like um, they could, you know, shift at times or, you know, time of day or whatever, but it's like, there are things you can build on. Once you have anything that you do every day, you can build on it. And you just stack the habits on top of that, and that's what ends up being a situation where you're like, you don't have to think like I've got to write today. It's like I'm writing because like that's that's just what I do. I mean, it's just what I do. You know, it's just you
0: know.
2: Yeah, what I'm what I'm hearing is you know I also have a, a little thing on the word discipline because it's connected to disciplinarian and you know, no one wants to be disciplined and, and all that. So what I'm hearing, you know, I, I usually focus on what's doable. And, but what I'm calling from today is this idea of like putting doable and focus together. What's a doable focus. What, what's something that's I can focus on that's doable. And, and like you just said, building on that and allowing that to take over. Yeah. yeah
1: and what's actually like the other piece about this is, radical acceptance of reality. How much time do you actually have in your life? How much time do you have to spend on this? Right. Don't think you're going to spend two hours writing your novel when you come home from work exhausted and, you know, have to deal with your kids and make dinner. And then what, you're going to perk up and like, write for, you know, it's not going to happen. Like think, think smart. Like what do you actually have to give yeah. and don't promise yourself you're going to do more than that.
2: Yeah. Resources, respect the resources. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there for me, like, I also noticed there's context involved about like, where do I need to be and what time of day and what environment is right for me? And what do I need to be away from? Like, it's making like intelligent decisions so that, mm-hmm. you know, you're likely to actually be able to do this, you know, like working at home may not be the right thing for you. Whereas like, you know, and so there is often, um, and then just like, even, yeah, I mean, you alluded to it, like getting to listen to your favorite podcast ever but it's it's developing a i think a positive association with it too, where it's like you remove the pressure of like for some people it's the pressure of needing to be amazing, you know, I see that a lot, um and just let yourself um, play, explore, see what's there, um take away the expectation I think is enormously helpful, and to your point, you know, I, I heard once said like successful people think about you know the past 20% of the time and the future 80% of the time and i think that's about right where it's like you look at what wasn't working but you don't fixate on like the shame of not completing that you just people who can forget the past like what happened yesterday in like a healthy way i think do really well
1: um, yeah, I but, I, but I, would, I would amend that and that. say like i feel like think about the past 20% of the time the future 10% of the time and the present 70% of the time, because like thinking about the future too much is the path to, you know, uh, perfectionism and freezing up. Like you need to think strategically about like where am I want to go and like, how is this going to fit in and that kind of thing. But if you're sitting around thinking about like how this is going to contribute to your legacy, yeah. man, you're done.
2: Yeah. I think and I think about Adam. it. I feel like Adam and I have done really well with dropping for perfectionism when it comes to this podcast. So, I mean, I think that, you know, we've really just. <laughs> we
0: do. We don't. Um, and become excel, becoming less perfectionist every year. We
2: <laughs> but it's a, it's something I really want to commit to, and it's it's a goal that I feel like I'm achieving. So you know, I feel good about that. Yeah.
0: yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I want to ask um, a question about your decision to go um, live and work in Mexico City in the late I guess the late '90s, because uh, I think a lot of writers and artists think about like the financial constraints on their lives. And if I didn't, you know, like I'll write the book when I don't have to do this difficult job. Right. And I understand every, you know, I don't, I know everyone has circumstances very difficult, particularly in this day and age, but it was an interesting choice. Right. And so I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit, like what that choice was about, whether you ever recommend those types of choices to other artists and writers. Uh,
1: well, it was, a choice around just wanting to, you know, experience something different and be a new place. So it wasn't driven by any, we weren't getting a job. It wasn't, you know, none of that stuff, right? Um, We just went. Um, And I absolutely recommend it to other people who can make it work. Um, Living in Mexico City, certainly then, I think probably still now, was really inexpensive. So um, it was what actually freed me from having a day job because i was able to earn dollars with some illustration and stuff like that and live on pesos and um it was quite affordable to do it they talk about that right now actually mexico city is one of the named
2: cities for that uh, it's a big culinary movement there's an uh, there's a, a
1: it's a great of, city. I
2: love it. Of artists, like uh, American artists that live there. There's even a name for that part of town where all they assemble. But, um, Ash, I think it's Asherville, Asheville, North Carolina, Mexico city. Um, there's a couple of other hotspots around the world where people are now gravitating because LA Paris, San Francisco, New York are just, they're just too expensive for art, Art, true artists. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. And I really, I mean, I, the reason I recommend, uh, someplace like Mexico City or wherever else is that I think that living um, outside your home country is immensely useful for artists um, because uh, especially as Americans, um, but I think this is true for people from wherever you're from, um, your assumptions about how life works and you know your relationship to the world and how other people should relate to you and everybody it's all so culturally bound, like it's so much about um, where you grow up and the assumptions that are being made around you. Now, if you're American, it's even more than that because it's in like all our media and all, whatever, and other people from other countries see our media and understand a little bit about that, you know what it's like to be American, but um, until you leave your culture, and not just because like if you go and live in Mexico City and you hang out with all Americans, it doesn't work that you don't get it, right? You have to go somewhere else and learn the language and talk to people who are not American um, and hang out with them, then what you do is you kind of understand something. I mean, certainly not everything, but some things about being American, like in the 360 round, as opposed to just like, I I think of it almost like you're growing up, you're like a bas-relief. Like you're in the matrix of your culture and you can't really see all the outlines of who you are or, you know, what you have as a, cultural producer you know what what can you do and you don't learn that until you go and immerse yourself in, in another culture maybe several you know like do it for a while we lived there for two years um really really life-changing amazing um and we more recently lived in france for four years wow. so um well, I, where, I really where, where, where in france we were in um a town called angouleme
2: and what what, big, what bigger town would i know that's near there it's it
1: somewhat Angoulême. near bordeaux
2: okay
1: Wow, what was that like? I mean, it was great. It was really a great experience. Oule um, is a small city, not you know on on the um, radar basically anybody who 's not a cartoonist, but it has a big comics thing because they have a big festival there, and we were there um, as residents in a residency for cartoonists um, and uh, you know brought our kids and they went to public school and you know, all that stuff. So um, it's a very, it's a provincial town. Like it's not a, you know, but it's on the sort of on the route between Paris and Bordeaux so that, you know, you can get to Paris and TGV, which we would do, I don't know, a few times a year or whatever. It's not like we were, you know, constantly in the big cities. We were really mostly in the Provence, you know,
2: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Provence, I should say.
0: Yeah!
1: Wow. How fun. What yeah. a great life.
0: <laughs> a good life. Yeah. I think it's
1: more possible than people understand sometimes, you know, like um, in our case, you know, it was an immense undertaking to move to France when we were, like, full-on, you know, two kids, like, house, everything in Brooklyn. It was a huge, huge undertaking. But um, going to Mexico was, it was huge, but it wasn't, I mean, it was totally doable. So it's like there are times in your life when it's easier and not, but it's doable. Like, if you commit yourself to it, you know, for a lot of people, there's there's a way to get there and the way to do it.
0: Nice. Yes. Yeah, and I... I I like what you, you say just like about some of it is about perspective. And I think it's just also remembering that you have a choice. I think sometimes when we're trapped in our, in our culture, we forget that we have choices around where we want to live, how we want to spend our time, whether we do or do not have to actually be part of this system of having this job, obviously going to inexpensive places like Mexico city, give you freedom to allocate more time to your creative work. And
1: right. Well, and, and Angoulême is also an inexpensive city. Like it was not very expensive to live there um so it doesn't you know compared to you know where we are now is like a less expensive life so it's not we weren't like going up the level there either you know we were definitely making it more affordable for ourselves
0: yeah yeah because it's like you know we talk about being realistic about time and how much time you have for this and often it is hard i think for some people because these are huge decisions about where to live and you know, it's, it's also, I think, inspiring that you did it with children because I think a lot of people always say, like, I can never do this with children. And, like, um, yeah, it's just a reminder that we have choices and that, like, we, you know, because a lot of times I think I encounter is that deeply creative people who have often entered into habits, uh, lifestyles, expectations, um, sort of seeing the same messages every day working in a corporation or an organization. And it's very hard for them to consider, like, we have one life and this is like, I'm making choices every day and there are other choices that could be made. And there are trade-offs both ways, but there are choices. And it's sort of this thing that I think has become like, oh, well, you can do that when you're 19. But like now I'm like, I can't do that anymore.
1: I mean, it's harder. I will. Absolutely. It's harder. Like it gets harder. But it's not impossible, and I think um your your point about choices is one hundred percent on the money because like even though not everybody will get to pick up and move to another country or whatever when they have kids, it just may not be possible for various reasons, and that's fine. but all the stuff you are talking about earlier about like are you going to you know be frozen or are you going to finish the novel or the screenplay or whatever it is that you're working on, that is a choice it's your choice. you can do it, and everything I teach is about taking control in that way um and understanding you know, not to go full circle to the situation we're in right now, but obviously there are things we do not have control over right now. Lots of things, right? Like but the thing this if you don't,
0: what? The thing this episode
1: is not about. <laughs> yeah, the thing this episode is not about. <laughs> yeah. But the things you do have control over, uh, you need to take control over. Like you need to decide that you are in charge and you're making decisions about those things. Because otherwise you just feel like, you know, it's all, you know, the that feeling of helplessness is, is the worst and is just you know will stop you Th- that's one of the
2: things i'm taking away from our conversation today which is this idea of of making sure that i am not asleep uh, at, at, at my choice points at my decision makings or or so uh, anesthetized that i don't even recognize it as a choice it just becomes a pattern a patterned unconscious response
1: right because you're making so, choices all the time every day mm-hmm. but often they are choices of unchoosing like you just let things happen that is also a choice
2: right right and then at the same it's, it's very interesting too because from a from a creative perspective there's that part where we want to uh, automatize uh, certain aspects of our lives so that we can we can do our very best creative work so it's a it's a very interesting uh, uh
1: balance yeah, i think concept. there's tons of value to that i mean habits are magic and a lot of what you're talking about is creating habits and it's not just the creative habit but also the habit of like taking care of your house in this particular way or you know dealing with your kids in this particular like create habits all around you the Mm -hmm. more we can reduce decision fatigue decision points anything where you have to decide is going to take away your energy for doing the things that you really need your energy for like making your creative work or having really high quality relationships or whatever. Like you, you need energy for those things. And so don't waste your energy on stuff that you can automate, habitize, whatever, you know, like you don't need to make it into like a a gauntlet every day.
0: Absolutely. I agree. hundred percent. Jessica, thank you so much. Yeah, well,
2: I have one more thing. I have one, <laughs> Jessica, if you, because this is something that I've, I'm, I'm like, I'm like really working on right now. And I find it really interesting. Okay. So in, 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 this is for all people who are involved in storytelling, which is all of us. So we, we as people who create stories, have different things, that, uh, tools that we implement in order to, 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 to ramp up a story. And one of those is the ticking clock, right? So you put, you put a clock on it, right? Okay. So I'm, I'm working with that. I'm working that as a tool in, 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 in the work I do. And then one day I'm, I'm sitting here and I went, oh, my God, there's a ticking clock on me right now, and it's completely made up. I can take that ticking clock off, reduce the pressure, and life is good, right? And so what I'm realizing is, is that is that the very tools that we use in storytelling to create more drama, we can actually do the opposite and have a happier life. So, yes, my <laughs> my question to you is what other ones besides a ticking clock have you ever thought about or implemented or seen in terms of your life of like, oh, I, I do this in my storytelling and now I can do the opposite in my real life to make my real life better.
1: I don't know because I, I haven't thought like I not thought about it in those terms before. But I think you're absolutely right. Like you're telling a story about yourself in terms of like when is this thing due and how long do I have to work? And like we always talk in co- coaching about stories, right? Things that yeah. stories you're telling yourself that are gonna yeah. you know make you do one thing or another. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think you can look at your own the way you organize your life as a story you're telling telling yourself for sure
2: all, all day. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I don't know that I've come up with like, I, that I have something specific that I can answer that question with. I think the ticking clock one is really good though. Like that That's idea right. of like, you don't have to have that. I think maybe the other thing that maybe another story and it's not like, um, it's a thing I would give as a characteristic to a character, but it's not like necessarily like my, in my go-to tool bag, but perfectionism, basically this idea that you need to come up to some level or, I mean, I don't know, something will happen that's bad, you know, if you don't like yeah. hit this point. Yeah. Um, it's certainly useful dramatically uh, in building characters and completely unuseful in life. <laughs> yeah, I, so I
2: think that's just a fun thing. For, I, I'm looking at that and I think it's a fun thing to start looking for like doing the opposite and to mm-hmm. make the life more um, fruitful. Yeah, more fruitful. Yep. Yeah. All right, Adam, take us out. I know know you'd love to.
0: Um, I hope this conversation has been fruitful for our listeners (laughs) uh, because you can't have this hour back of your life. Uh, We took it from you. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much. Um, We are uh, wishing you uh, lots of health and safety around the thing that we're not talking about on this podcast. Um, And if people want to find you, where should they find you?
1: Uh, Well, my website is at jessicaable.com. It's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L.com. Actually, I have a couple of things they might like that we talked about. Um, So there's a worksheet that I have for figuring out your one goal, um, which is at jessicaable.com slash OG. Um, And that's got the criteria and like how to think through like what that goal could be. Um, And then the other thing is I have this um, video workshop on the creative engine which is at jessicaable.com slash CFW for a creative focus workshop. So um, if that's appealing to you, that idea of that framework, then you can find that there and I would love to share it with you.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Jessica. Be well. Thanks,
1: you guys too. Thanks for having me.